From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. This week, we bring you the second part of Shahram Aghamir's interview with UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual about the root causes of the catastrophic loss of life in the recent earthquakes in Turkey. The two powerful tremblers that befell southern Turkey and Syria on February 6th have killed at least 41,000 people in southern Turkey and nearly 6,000 in neighboring Syria. Some of the questions that have been asked over and over again are, what can possibly explain such a high number of casualties? What can explain the widespread destruction of old and new buildings? And could death and destruction on such a vast scale have been prevented? Shahram Aghamir spoke with UC Berkeley sociologist Professor Jihan Tual. Among Professor Tual's published books are The Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism, and Passive Revolution, Absorbing the Islamic Challenge to Capitalism. The initial observations related to failure modes of the uh, collapsed buildings point to lack of compliance with building codes. Jihan, after the devastating 1999 earthquake in northwestern Turkey, in which more than 17,000 people died, the government promised a major program of recovery and rebuilding intended to strengthen building codes and improve cross-jurisdictional coordination. This program seems to have been rendered ineffective by what has been described as endemic corruption and lax enforcement of building codes. Can you talk about such measures and how an ineffective implementation of them may have exacerbated the calamity and the crisis that we are experiencing today? That's a very good entry point, probably the first point where we should enter this whole riddle. This is a riddle with many pieces. So we should slowly discover different parts of the elephants before seeing the whole thing. 1999 was a turning point in Turkish history. There were many parties before that, and they were all corrupt, and they were wiped away by the earthquake. And this new party, Justice and Development Party, that was established in 2001 by splitting away from what was relatively a smaller Islamist party, promised it's going to change everything in Turkey for the better. And a big part of this was a promise about building codes. And actually, it did change certain things, especially the squatting stopped. And we can talk about that later, why there was so much squatting in the 80s and 90s. The other important thing is that it came up with really good building codes, starting with the 2000s and then continuing into the 2010s. The codes were almost on a par with world standards, but these were never enforced. So then the the whole question is, if the codes were out there, why weren't they enforced? Then people start to talk about corruption. The party just looked the other way while the constructors, the contractors and the developers were building shoddy buildings. But then the question becomes why it would do that. And I think that very wording, you know, corruption hides things as much as it reveals things. Because corruption creates this imagery that 
things could be right, but there are bad apples and people don't play by the rules. Therefore, that's why this is happening. But if the reasons are more structural, then it's not just about bad apples. There are very deep and structural reasons why the party didn't enforce these codes. And we can talk about two kinds of reasons. First, top-down, and the second, bottom-up. A top-down reason is that the party was trying to create a bourgeoisie, a capitalist class of its own. So the republic had a very established secular nationalist business class, and they were trying to counterbalance that with an Islamic business class. So they needed quick wealth creation. So it's as much an ideological as a political project. So it's not corruption in the sense that, oh, that there were bad people who were doing this. No, the Justice and Development Party encouraged getting wealthy as quick as possible so that there could be this new business class and the reins would no longer be in the hands of the secular business class. This is one actually more obvious reason. The second bottom-up reason is even more difficult to understand, but it is maybe even more important. And it involves many more people, not just this party. It involves the other parties and Turkey's development model as a whole, and it actually involves international institutions. So it has to be unpacked very carefully, and it's a very long story, but I'll try to make it as concise as possible. The Turkish development path depended on low wages and insecure jobs. So if people don't have enough money, how can they survive? Well, they can strike and organize and build unions and attain higher wages. But that path was already closed in 1980. So as an alternative to that, the governments just opened up space for cheap buildings. So that also means the people who are building these buildings, the workers, as much as the developers, would have insecure and low-skill jobs that make them survive for a while and then move on to the next job. So lots of chains of insecure jobs, low pay, and then they found these cheap houses built by the developers and increasingly also by governments and municipalities. So that's another part of the mix here. The government itself became a developer and started to build these shoddy buildings. So that's why I'm very cautious about this word corruption. It's not because the party simply looked the other way. It's that the party, both its business class and its working class, depended on shoddy construction from the get-go. So it's not looking the other way. It's organizing all of this wealth creation and job creation and housing creation for millions of people. And then the entire Turkish economy, its growth started to depend on this growth in the construction sector. That's such an excellent point. Corruption refers to an aberration. It's not the rule. When it's a rule, this is the logic of accumulation. Exactly. That's what people don't get. This is so frustrating. This is not bad apples. This is not ignorance. People say ignorance all the time. No, people knew they were building horrible structures. They knew it could be destroyed by earthquakes. So why do this? 
Well, because of both ideological reasons, as I pointed out, and survival reasons. For poorer people, there is no other way you can survive in this economy while consuming more and more, getting into more and more credit card debt, and also having low wages, you need cheap housing. And also for ideological reasons, you need a business class. It's clear, as you just mentioned, that Mr. Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party used external capital, poured into land and construction development to power more than a decade of high growth in Turkey, close to two decades. And when we are talking about growth, obviously we are just talking about these absolute GNP figures. It doesn't say anything about how the wealth is distributed. But before we discuss the details of their urban transformation scheme, as it's called, let's go back and look at broader development strategies and economic policies, some of which predate the 2002 elections that brought AKP into power. As you said, there are many pieces into this puzzle. Let's talk about the decade following the 1980 coup when military rule decimated the militant trade unions and cleared the way for Turkey's shift from state-sponsored developmentalism to free market economy, as you write. In this period, you identify a sharp increase in social polarization. Can you talk about this period and its significance for what comes in the next phase with the uh, AKP at the helm starting in the 21st century? Yeah, without understanding 1980, the military coup and the economic package that was already conceived eight months before the military coup, we can't understand the AKP, even though this uh, predates the AKP by two decades. So what happened was that, as you just pointed out, Turkey was in a mixed economy, state developmentalist path. It was still capitalist. This was by no means socialist. It was a state capitalism mixed with market capitalism, but very much controlled by the government and also populated by militant trade unions because of the freer environment, more democratic environment of the 1960s and 1970s. What changed was the global economic narrative at that point. Throughout the 1970s, more and more World Bank and IMF economists started to think mixed economies are bound for stagnation. So we need to clear the way for more free markets and we need to lower wages, and we need to de-unionize. That model was brought to Turkey by a World Bank economist, Turgut Özal, who used to be more statist in his youth, but he stayed in the U.S. for a while, and he also conversed with the Turkish business class at that time. So he rematured into a free market economist, and Turgut Özal devised this uh, plan called the January 24th plan of economic development. But there was no way these low wages could be enforced in the presence of a true democracy. Turkish democracy had many shortcomings, but there was more freedom of organization. So if there is freedom of organization, you can't really have low wages. So that's what the military coup did. It just killed all the unions. It also temporarily closed down parties, but then parties were allowed to organize after three years. But guess what happened? This World Bank economist, bureaucrat, Turgut Özal, was the head of the first party to be elected after the 1980 coup. 
So after 1983, now Turgut Özal was able to implement his policy package with the backing of the military. So despite the fact that on the TV screens, he was sparring with the generals who led the coup, but that was mostly about civilian military balances. It was not about the economy. So regarding the economy and regarding the impoverishment of social rights, they were totally on the same page, actually. So they lowered wages, they killed the unions, and unlike previous governments throughout the 1930s to the 1970s, they gave a blank check to squatting. So who are the squatters? Well, they are rural to urban immigrants who are also the proletariat, who are also the working class. That was the bargain. So we won't give you wages, and we won't allow you to organize, but we will allow you to build shoddy buildings. This was a very funny mixture because in the 1970s, the proletariat, these rural immigrants, they would also build their shoddy buildings, but then the state would just go in and destroy their buildings and they were perceived as terrorists because many of these people organized in small leftist factions in the 1970s. So all of that was gone. Well, all of the leftist factions, their members were killed, tortured, exiled, even hanged in the dozens. So there was nothing to fear at that front. And then it became a part of the social contract. Of course, calling it contract is funny because it was forced at the point of the bayonet. But it was a contract of sorts because ultimately people played along with it. So, okay, we don't have unions. What do we do? We build these shoddy buildings. So these buildings were all over Turkey. And in 60s, 70s, even 1950s, when you say squatting, it was really one-story buildings, just enough for residents. But these people slowly became rentiers too. The proletariat, if you can believe it, also became rentiers because instead of building this small residence, they would build three-story building or sometimes four-story building, and they would start to rent out to the newer coming immigrants. So this became a Ponzi scheme. It substituted for wages, it substituted for organization, and it merged the rentier class with the proletariat. But this couldn't go on forever because this structure of development created the 1999 earthquake debacle. So that's why so many people died. I mean, it was because of these shoddy constructions. The AKP, in its first phase at least, injected those of what you call selective welfareism. It was spearheaded by the Mass Housing Authority, which privatized public lands and boosted the uh, fortunes of construction tycoons while also building sorts of new apartments for the uh, lower and middle class, you call them regime supporters, predominantly Sunni and Turkish, who had relocated to major cities. At this time, external investment poured into land and construction development and powered a decade of uh, high growth. This is the period where you have new infrastructural projects that are obviously funded by external capital to a large extent by the capital from the Gulf region, Persian Gulf region. So you talk about not only just housing projects, but also malls, all sorts of infrastructure, even things such as the White Palace for Erdogan on the outskirts of Ankara. You call it a market-led strategy for economic development and growth, especially in the booming housing and construction sector. 
we did talk about some of the problems related to the seismic safety of these new buildings. But how would you assess the other aspects of this strategy? Let's say in terms of providing affordable housing and public infrastructure. Well, as you mentioned, despite all of this cheapness, all of this construction was still funded through external debt. I talked about household debt and credit card debt, but that was not all of the story. All of this depended on the flow of global cash. So it's assumed lower interest rates, especially in the West, so that there was all of this money circulating throughout the globe. But once the Fed started to raise interest rates in the early 2010s, this growth model slowly started to run into problems, and not just in construction, but overall. So 2013 is one of the important uh, turning points. After 2013, the whole growth energy that was being spearheaded by the construction sector started to dissipate. Growth didn't stop, but it wasn't as impressive as in the first 10 years of the Justice and Development Party. And as a response to this, the party ratcheted up governmental and state involvement in the production. But even that didn't save the economy or even the construction sector. So once the global flow of cash further tightened by the end of the 2010s, this whole change in the global economy led to a crash in the Turkish economy in 2018. And ever since 2018, the high rate of inflation, it just cannot be stopped. And Turkish lira keeps uh, losing its value. They can't stop that either. So reliance on construction resulted in financial devastation after 2018, before it destroyed the lives of 15 million people in a more direct way with the earthquake. The AKP Justice and Development Party entered office in 2002 after the collapse of what you call the pure neoliberalism of the 1990s, which had left the traditional parties severely discredited. Financial deregulation had aided export-led manufacturing, but rendered the entire economy vulnerable to capital market shocks. So Turkey was hard hit in 1997 when Asian markets plunged into crisis and global cash flows seized up. The AKP promised to bring both rapid economic growth and social justice, including improved income distribution, in order to address these pressing social and economic problems, as you write. In its first years in office, the AKP implemented what you call the post-Washington consensus. An important ingredient of this strategy was the expansion of household debt levels driven by government policy choices that were themselves shaped by extended international monetary fund surveillance, which basically discouraged the state spending on public goods and services. Talk about this strategy. What did this entail, its reliance on external capital and its impact on the lives of the poor and wage laborers, and how it relates to where we are today vis-a-vis these earthquakes? Yes, uh, Shahram, now we are touching another part of the elephant. I mean, this is such a, a complex puzzle. We should mention now another World Bank economist. Again, everybody writing on Turkey write as if this is a national story. 
It has many national components, as I discussed with the creation of the Islamic bourgeoisie and the role of the construction sector in that. Yeah, that's very important. But you can't ignore the World Bank and the IMF. And Kemal Darvish. Just like there was Turgut Özal in 1980, there was Kemal Darvish in 2001. He brought this whole package. Construction was not an obvious part of it, I should mention from the beginning, but I'll link it back to construction in the end. The visible part of the package was that the lower wages would persist, deunionization would persist, but now instead of encouraging squatting, what the authorities would encourage would be household debt, credit card debt, mortgages, more and more individual debt, as well as some welfare policies. So some targeted welfare policies, not welfare as a universal right, but welfare for the poorest, especially health coverage uh, more than anything else. So the cuts in education persisted, but there was a relatively good health coverage for at least 10 years. Regarding the years, there are some debates between scholars about how much was really provided after 10 years, especially. And a limited number of housing units for the extremely poor, right? So yes, Kemal Darvish wrote this package, but the existing parties could not implement it. I mean, because they were so discredited by the earthquake, by the financial crash, but also by their anti-democratic practices. So the AKP promised everything. It promised democracy. It promised peace with the Kurds. It promised welfare. It promised everything. This package, even though it was devised by the World Bank and brought to Turkey by Kemal Dervish, the AKP didn't accept Dervish into the party, but they implemented his plan because the party itself didn't have such a well-rounded plan. But as they were implementing Kemal Darvish's plan, they also implemented this state capitalism. And as I'm saying, even the best of scholars were not paying a lot of attention to the governmental production component of all of this. So yes, wages were lowered, denialization persisted, and both the Kemal Darvish vision and the AKP vision was very anti-union. The welfare, the household debt, the credit card debt, all of that was very visible and was being criticized by scholars. And all the critical scholars were pointing out how all of these things came together to sustain the poor. But as important was the twist that the AK Party gave to the Dervish vision. So it is true that they implemented the Dervish vision, but they also implemented state capitalism without naming it as such. So they turned the state into a capitalist developer in the construction sector. Uh, So as much as these giant capitalists created by the party, the party itself, the party state, let's call it, the party state itself was building these giant and poorly built roads, infrastructures and houses. Welcome back. I am Malihe Razazan. And you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. I'm going to take a few minutes to remind you that we are in Fundrive and we are asking for your financial support. You have been listening to Shahram Aramir's interview with UC Berkeley sociologist Jihan Tual about the root causes of the catastrophic loss of life in the recent earthquakes in Turkey. We rely on your financial help 
to keep our station in operation. KPFA needs to raise $475,000. Our listeners came through in December, and we made our goal, and we are hoping for a repeat. We bring you information and analysis that you're able to hear only on this station and nowhere else. If you think there should be a place like KPFA, a platform like KPFA, please take a few minutes to donate by calling 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, or please go to kpfa.org and donate online. That's 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, or kpfa.org. We are looking for monthly sustainers to sustain the station on a regular basis and help KPFA pay workers and maintain the infrastructure of the station. By becoming a monthly donor, you provide the foundation for our work on an ongoing basis. You can become a sustaining member with as little as $10 a month. This drive, we have a goal of 400 new monthly sustainers. Help KPFA secure its future with your regular support. Please visit kpfa.org or call 1-800-439-5732 and become a sustaining member of KPFA today. 1-800-439-5732 or you can donate online at kpfa.org. We go back to more of Shahram Aghamir's interview with Professor Jihan Twal about the root causes of the catastrophic loss of life in the recent earthquakes in Turkey. Jihan, after 2013, we saw a shift. Now, the strategy seems to be more dependent on the capital from Qatar while keeping the interest rates artificially low. Yes. So since money from the West slowed down, the government started to aggressively court Gulf capital, primarily Qatar, but not exclusively Qatar. And of course, ideological ties went hand in hand with that, ideological, political and military. So the two governments, Qatar and Turkey, cooperated throughout the region in funding paramilitaries and also civilian governments closer to the Turkish-Qatari axis. We don't know the full extent of the cooperation. And once this kind of thing starts to happen, there is already so much nationalism bordering on racism in Turkey that people start to talk about this all in terms of race and ethnicity and religion and not really in terms of economics. So this really fed into the anti-Arab sentiment in Turkey. So that also made things very complicated. And instead of paying attention to the financial links and what is happening to the developmental model, people are complaining about how many Gulf people there are in Turkey now as tourists and investors and allegedly, you know, this conspiracy theory about rich Arabs buying more and more land in Turkey and colonizing Turkey. You find this in the fringes of uh, even the center-left party, but also right-wing parties. But the financial links, they are hardly discussed in public. So they don't have a problem with uh, Europeans buying real estate in Turkey? Only No, no, no. There is that too. Maybe it's couched in different terms, but conspiracy theories abound. The second part of this new strategy is maintaining low interest rates. That's something Mr. Erdogan has been 
emphatic about at the expense of actually hiring and firing new chairs of central bank too frequently. What is in that argument for him? Obviously, there's a political incentive in it because that helps him during the elections. What else is there? Yeah, there are many other things. So one argument is religious. Actually, that's the most public argument. He's saying, and other party ideologues are saying, we are doing this because it says so in the Quran. So they're saying this is primarily a religious decision. But of course, it's not. That might be one dimension of it. There is growing clerical influence on this government. But they are trying to pull out a bigger experiment. It just hasn't worked quite yet. The idea is not only low interest rates, but also the persistence of low wages and a growing export orientation. I already mentioned that they were doing state capitalism without the developmentalism. But in the last five years or so, especially the new people surrounding Erdogan, the new economic advisors that have replaced uh, the earlier economic advisors of the 2000s, they emphasize the Chinese model of development. And they say we should be export oriented based on low wages. And they say low interest rates is also a part of that. So I should also mention that not Erdogan and not the people coming from the Islamist past, but some of these economic advisors have their roots in the left. And despite that, they have shifted to the right, but they also look up to China, not as a communist country, but as a state capitalist country. Unlike the clerics, they see the low interest rates as a model of technology advancing and technology promoting growth. But despite all of this talk about a new developmental model, things never got there. So the whole idea was that some of these uh, capitalists would invest more in high-tech sectors instead of cheap money, quick money sectors. That never happened. The economists, not the dervish type of economists, but these economists with a leftist pest with roots in the left, they were counting on the party and especially Erdogan with all of his charisma to twist the arm of, arms of the capitalists and make them invest in high-tech sectors. These are former Maoists. Mostly. Yes, exactly. These are former Maoists, especially starting with the military. I'm not saying none of this happened. As you know, Turkey produces drones for the war in Ukraine. So there is some development here and there, but this never became the motor of the economy. They had this big talk about producing cars that could be exportable, but they never got there. Well, the lower interest rates presumably help with construction as well for some of these uh, cronies of the regime to uh, move on with their construction projects, no? Yes, it definitely helps that. But again, here, the pragmatic and the grandiose versions start to conflict with each other. So what is actually happening is exactly it is helping cheap money in a different way for those with the grandiose plans. The whole idea was that we're going to keep interests and wages low and we're going to force capitalists to invest in high tech because they won't invest in finance. That is going to create this high tech export boom. But what is really happening is that this disadvantages more secure and westward looking capitalists from investing in Turkey, because when interest rates are high, that brings some predictability into the economy 
And the secular bourgeoisie, the more established bourgeoisie, can predict things, can feel secure, and can actually invest in things that are not as cheap as construction. So the low interest rates work in the opposite way in which they're intended. Instead of promoting this developmentalist state capitalist path, they promote cronyism. The AKP has viewed construction as an engine for growth. This does not seem to have addressed the um, shortage of housing units in Turkey. But at the same time, the number of workers employed in this sector has doubled and the share of construction workers in total employment has sharply increased in the last decade or so. The construction sector seems to constitute somewhere around 9 to 10% of the Turkish economy with more than 2 million people employed in it. These high rates of growth in the sector, however, have not produced adequate affordable housing for the population. Neither has it brought better working conditions or social security provisions for these workers. More than one third of construction workers are still unregistered, which excludes them from the formal social security system and leaves them unprotected when injuries occur on duty. And the workers in this sector have substantially lower earnings compared to other sectors. What can you tell us about this aspect of the construction sector? Yes, that's a very good summary. So what has been happening, at least until 2018, 2019 or so, the construction sector was also the motor of job creation. But all of these jobs were insecure, low-paying, but it didn't mean there are no jobs. So you just go from one job to another and it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes, quote-unquote, a career. And these people were always worried. What if even this goes away? If the opposition comes, they might not be able to even sustain this. And I have mortgage debt. I have credit card debt. I need this kind of job. So it became a long-term trap. Even though it's very insecure, people went along with this, at least a part of the people. And there have been many attempts to organize workers in the construction sector, and some organizers made some headway. But it's still a very poorly organized, very dispersed working class population without a true union of its own. And uh, it doesn't look like that is going to change anytime soon. What has changed is that this quote-unquote impressive job creation has also dwindled away with the 2018 crash. Just like the economy uh, stopped growing, the construction sector itself uh, stopped delivering as many jobs and as many houses. The other thing that has been happening throughout these two decades is that it's not that there isn't enough housing, it's just the reverse. There's an excess of housing. We don't even know the ratio of empty buildings. There are many empty units throughout Turkey. There are these uh, buildings that crush and kill people, but there are many empty buildings and empty units that are bought and sold just like papers on the stock market. So their whole purpose is speculation. I don't know how many people those killed, if any. You know, it's a part of the darker picture because these numbers are so hard to reach. And I don't know, even after this earthquake, whether we will know 
how many of the buildings that killed people were built under the AKP versus in the 1980s and 1990s versus before Özal. But I would really like to know, and it's almost impossible to reach those numbers. We have been talking about construction in the context of this devastation, this calamity that Turkey and Syria have witnessed. When we do look at the AKP's plan for urban transformation, we need to talk about the protests at Gezi Park back in May and June of 2013, when Turkey was shaken by these protests. The protests were prompted by the uprooting of trees in Istanbul's uh, Gezi Park. These protests were triggered by that, but they quickly moved into a nationwide movement calling broadly for more participatory politics in the country. Can you talk about the significance of that moment and what role is the environmentalist movement in Turkey playing in preventing the construction projects that are so devastating to the environment, projects that have also created these death traps that we are witnessing today? Yeah, I would say, and it's not just me, many people have been saying We were not building buildings, we were building tombstones for the people. And of course, the we is generic here. I mean, it's really the construction companies that were doing this. So yeah, what is the relationship of the movements to all of this picture? We have to understand that Turkey has had housing rights movements for decades. And then after the 1980s and 1990s, a gradually strengthening environmentalist movement And these have had impact, but up until the Gezi Rebellion in 2013, these were mostly away from the headlines. So the headlines never captured what was going on. So these environmentalist movements and housing rights movements captured the attention of only people who are already interested in these issues. And of course, of the government and the developers too, because they were serious impediments to what was happening, but they never added up to like a popular national movement on the scale we saw in the 1960s and 1970s, when there were, you know, very strong students' movements, workers' movements, anti-imperialist movements, anti-fascist movements, which became national popular movements. Environmentalists and housing rights movements, even when they were embraced by people, they were embraced by local people. So they were local causes. They never became a national cause. But this created a tradition. This created a vocabulary for this kind of issue. And when the police attacked the environmentalists in Gezi Park, one of the last remaining green areas in the center of Istanbul, which was bulldozed basically by the government to create a mall, that itself is very symbolic, you know, about what the government is doing to uh, nature and our relationship with nature. So when environmentalists trying to protect the park were attacked by the police, the vocabulary was ready. After that point, at least for several months, this became a national popular cause. We won't let the government destroy everything of value in this society. We own our trees. There were no proper leaders of the movement, but the people who were talking in public about the movement were a coalition of housing right activists, environmental activists, architects, lawyers, civil engineers, who had been, you know, loosely cooperating with each other for at least a decade. And they shared this vocabulary of 
how Turkey's development path was destroying nature and we had to protect nature and society against the market. And that started to capture the imagination of people. So it was on the verge of becoming a national popular cause and maybe turning into a movement as big as the movement of the 1970s. Well, the rebellion itself it was the biggest urban rebellion Turkish history saw. The scale of the rebellion itself is just unparalleled in Turkish history. But a rebellion itself is not a movement. Unlike uh, the movement of the 1970s, this had no sustainability because what happened was other issues quickly derailed the environmental housing rights dimension of the initial rebellion. So what happened instead? Well, for very understandable reasons, people started to focus on the person of the dictator. All this is happening all because of Erdogan. And indeed, he was getting more and more authoritarian. And he is very much associated with this developmental path. So in the beginning, there was something healthy about combining these causes, you know, and saying, this man and his development path, it's destroying uh, society. So we have to put an end to both. But once people started to focus more and more on the person of the dictator, the other half of the country started to perceive this as an attack against the person of Erdogan because of his personality qualities, which are associated with Islam. So for half of the country, this became an attack against Islam. And despite the participation of many left-wing Islamists in the rebellion, things didn't change after that. And I, I should mention the left-wing Islamists are a very small contingent. So they could say, well, we are here, but they could never say we are a very big part of this movement. They were not. Most of the people who participated in the rebellion were secular people. So the government easily repackaged the whole thing as a rebellion against Islam. And since the mainstream opposition also played into that, they played into the hands of the government. They didn't say, no, this is not a rebellion against Islam. This is a rebellion for housing rights, urban rights, and for nature and restoring our proper relationship with nature and having a more sustainable development path. The opposition just couldn't say that because the mainstream opposition didn't have the vocabulary. Unlike this, you know, loose network of environmentalists, housing rights activists, architects I've been talking about. There were political attempts to turn this into a national popular vision, but they also failed. And we haven't come to terms really about why this could not become a national popular vision. That history is still being written. So the activists and the journalists and the scholars are thinking about what exactly went wrong. But in the end, the government, I should say, was very successful and in the eyes of their supporters and also in the eyes of a good chunk of the opponents of the government, Gezi became a movement for secularism and against Islamism. Jihan, going back to the victims of the uh, earthquakes in southern Turkey and northern Syria, the area that has been impacted by these earthquakes happens to be habitat or living place for a large number of Syrian refugees. We don't hear about these Syrian refugees and how 
they are faring. What can you tell us about their predicament? And if they are receiving assistance from the government, are they being treated differently? Because we are also aware of the fact that treatment of Syrian refugees in Turkey sometimes is problematic. Uh, They're not being treated fairly. They're being treated as outsiders and they're being discriminated against and so forth and so on. Yes, this is one of the most difficult topics, actually. We do not have clear information about how much governmental and non-governmental aid is reaching the Syrian refugees. So when you ask either the government or when you look at the government channels or when you look at the non-governmental aid organizations, whenever they talk about this, they say, oh, we do not discriminate. We deliver aid to everybody equally, including the Syrian refugees. The problem is there is no way to double check this information. I mean, the Syrian refugees are among the most silenced populations in Turkey. Another layer of the difficulty is that they are not perceived that way. They are perceived as invaders, especially by the opposition. They're perceived as government pawns. Uh, So there is this conspiracy theory that Erdogan is going to make all of them citizens, and there are somewhere between three to four million refugees, uh, Syrians and others, including Afghans, but also others. And the government does not have a plan to grant them citizenship. But the conspiracy theory by the opposition is that they're all going to become citizens and they're going to vote for their benefactor, for the government. And this conspiracy theory was more credible before 2018. So between 2013 and 2018, the government was opening some paths for the normalization of this population in Turkey for a long-term solution to their difficulties. But after 2018, the government closed off most of the paths to citizenship. Okay, maybe some of them will become citizens, but there won't be millions who will alter the fate of the country. And it's not just that conspiracy theory. There are other things, like whenever the smallest thing goes wrong in a neighborhood, people automatically say, oh, it must be because of the Syrians. And this has some really extreme manifestations, like people record something with their cell phones and they say, oh, see, this Syrian refugee was stealing aid packages that was supposed to go to earthquake victims. And this becomes viral. It goes on to social media and becomes viral. People are so paranoid about Syrians. And now it's not just opposition people, it's government people too, government supporters too. They have become very paranoid about Syrians. These videos go viral and then it turns out the person captured on the video was not stealing anything and the person is not even a Syrian. Let's be honest about this. It is conceivable that some very poor people might be involved in thieving and looting in the middle of a disaster. These things happen. And some of these poor people might be Syrians. I'm not saying Syrians wouldn't do such a thing, but I'm saying this is a disaster area. There will be looting. There will be thieving. We can't all attribute it to the Syrians, but the public mood is, oh, Turks wouldn't do such a thing. It's the Syrians. Mm -hmm. These refugees often live in deplorable conditions with no clear roadmap for the resolution of their status as refugees. And their fate, their status is instrumentalized by the regime itself. And they use them as beverage. 
when they are facing the EU, for instance, they use them as a bargaining chip to gain concessions from the European Union. Yes, Erdogan did that at multiple terms. The Justice and Development Party did that at multiple terms, not, not just once. Whenever Europe does something they don't like, they say, oh, we are going to let the Syrians loose on you. And this is so insulting to use people like this. And of course, it's a shame on the European Union too, because the European Union has the infrastructure and the funds to house these people. And instead, a relatively poor country like Turkey is having to shoulder all of this burden on its own. And starting with Germany, Europe lets the situation be abused like this. That's a very good point. Jihan, in 2011, after another earthquake in which hundreds died, Mr. Erdogan, then the prime minister, cited poor construction as the main reason for high death toll, saying municipalities, constructors, and supervisors should now see that their negligence amounts to murder. Fast forward to today, how would you respond to that comment? Erdogan is definitely right. This is mass murder. There is no other name for it. But let's emphasize, almost all governments and municipalities from 1980 to today, where this was a shared developmental model, should take a part of the blame. 